Good evening, everyone. I'm Dougal. If you've not had a chance to meet, I look forward to meeting you over supper a little later on. Um, if it's not too indulgent to say, I love it when Mia reads the Bible. I think she just does it so well, so thank you for that. Um, this is really an advertisement for you to get your Bibles out to 2 Samuel 7. That's where we're going to be spending our time tonight. Uh, and while you're looking that up, my goal this evening is to try and persuade you that 2 Samuel 7 should be well and truly in the top 10, if not even in the top five of your favourite and most well-known Bible passages. Maybe that's ambitious, but that's what I'm going to try and do. You can see if you've got a news sheet that I've isolated, verse 16, as our topic sentence, your house, this is the Lord speaking to David through Nathan, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, if you take a glance at television programs across Australia, that tells me that Australians love a home renovation project. We've got long-running human interest stories like The Block and House Rules. If you prefer something a little more highbrow, there's Grand Designs. Um, the sum total of my architectural knowledge comes from Grand Designs, which is double the budget, double the time frame. In fact, just up the road here on Galston Road, you've got that massive development. That's our own kind of live version of Grand Designs. And I've got to tell you, I am so thrilled for the owners of that property because when it's finished, they are going to have the premier view of Dural's most magnificent water tower. Easily the best water views in the district, if you ask me. And I reckon King David... He would fit right in with us Aussies because he loved a building project. He loved it. Loved renovating, loved building. And yet strangely today, and somewhat unexpectedly, certainly for David and for Nathan listening in, his property plans get rejected. And our job tonight is to work out why did that happen? Why did God say no to David's proposal and what does it mean for you and me? Well, as a preview and as a bonus kind of topic sentence, I've given you one there from Proverbs chapter 19. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. 2 Samuel 7 is all about the Lord's purpose. It's about his purpose for David it's about his purpose for David's kingdom. It's about his purpose to bless his people. 2 Samuel 7, it's all about the Lord's purpose. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. I'm going to pray and we're going to take a closer look at this passage. Why don't you join me as I do that? Gracious God, we do thank you for this time that you've enabled us to set aside I want to pray for us all now. May the words of my mouth, may the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And we ask that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You can see my first point there, David's plan. It's well motivated, but it's misguided. If you think back to this time last week, we met David when he was the young shepherd boy. He was doing what King Saul should have done, taking on Goliath and the Philistine army. Well, we fast forward now. David is a grown man. Saul is dead. David, he's now the anointed king, the established king. The king was settled, verse 1, in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. Now, for the Israelites, this was a golden age. If you had to choose one moment in the history of Israel to live in the land, this was it, because you've got it all. Let's do the sums. You've got God's chosen king ruling over God's chosen people, 
in God's promised land, enjoying God's rest and prosperity. They've got it all. And when you lay it out like that, it sounds very much like the kinds of things that God promised to Abraham a thousand years earlier. Outside of Eden, this is probably as close as you'll get to heaven on earth, but it's not perfect. And a bit like having a big pimple on your nose, there's a problem sitting in plain sight. You can see it in verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he, David, said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, David, the king, he feels the discrepancy. How can it be right for me to live in a palace, but God's got to make do with a tent? Now, the ark here, this is kind of of Raiders of the Lost Ark fame, if that connects with you at all. The ark was the sacred box, and inside the box were the Ten Commandments, and this was the presence of God symbolised amongst his people. And so, wherever God's people went, this box in its tent, the house, it went with them. But with God's people now settled in the land, David looks around and he thinks to himself, well, this has got to be the right time, isn't it, to build God a house, a house that's appropriate for Israel's true king, the Lord himself. Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. David is well motivated. David is a good king. He desires something honourable. Of course, we know that David's plan is going to get rejected. But before we get to the lessons David needs to learn, he's got something to teach us. The way he conducts himself here, I think, poses a challenge to comfortable middle-class Australian Christians. Did you notice, instead of becoming distracted or consumed by his material success, David is still concentrated on, focused upon honouring God. David wants to do something honourable here. And if I can speak generally for a moment, our general tendency can be to drift away from God when things are good and then turn back to him when we need him, when things go wrong. David... He is not distracted by his wealth or his success. He's concentrated on and focused upon his relationship with God. But let's not get carried away because as noble as David is, you'll have noticed he hasn't offered to trade places with God. You know, you take the palace, God, I'll take the tent. And so the only solution to the problem that David sees, that is the problem as David has defined it, Well, because kings don't trade down, do they? Kings only ever trade up. And so the only solution here is to upgrade God's accommodation, isn't it? And with this proposal forming in David's mind, we arrive at another practical challenge for us. I want you to think about this. Who's got the problem in this passage? Who's got the problem here? David might feel awkward about the discrepancy between him living in a palace and God living in a tent. But guess what? That tells us more about David and David's priorities and his values than it does about the Lord. So often, from our limited perspective, we can make the mistake of deciding what God wants. 
We get attached to our projects. We get attached to our initiatives that we think will please God, all the while presuming to know what he wants. Now, you need to hear me. This is not always the case. Okay? It's not always the case, but I have seen it and many others have too. One extreme example of this is what you sometimes see happen in developing countries when well-intentioned but ill-informed short-term missionaries turn up usually rich Westerners, if we're honest, and they presume to tell local Christians what they need and what they want. And very often what you find is these, so to say, short-term missionaries come along, they build a whole bunch of stuff, which the locals have got no chance of maintaining, and then they leave and they can say to themselves, well, look what I did in the Lord's name, it's on Facebook. And I wonder if, you know, David had a kind of similar conversation going inside his head. Do you know, the Lord's going to be so impressed when he finds, about my, finds, out, finds out about my plan to build him a house. He's just going to be so excited. It seems unglamorous from our point of view, maybe. But do you know what God wants most? And we'll see this in a minute. He wants personal, quiet, humble obedience to his word. That's what he wants. And now the word of the Lord comes to David through Nathan. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David. Just quickly, glance back to verse one. David is the king. It's not a put down, but now David is my servant. It's not a put down, that's a privileged position, but it's just worth noting. The The king is a servant. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's not asked for a house. God doesn't want a house. And without wanting to put too fine a point on it, David, even if I do want a house, you're not going to be the one to build it for me. And again, here, David's experience has something to teach us. David had formed an idea, an idea that he thought God would find honourable. But even though David was well-intentioned, His plan is misguided. Why so? Has he ever stopped to ask God what he wanted? Or is David answering a question that God never asked? But I want you to hear me rightly because the practical lesson from David here is not never take the initiative. The answer is not to say, well, I'm not going to step out in faith because I might be wrong. That's not the lesson here. The lesson is that we should be prepared for the possibility that sometimes even our well-intentioned plans and projects, they may be misguided and therefore we need the humility like David to realise that even when our plans feel right to us, it's very possible that God may have different and better purposes in mind that we can't see. Do you remember the proverb, many other plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails? And now 
the Lord starts to reveal his purpose. And what you find is whatever residual disappointment David may have had about his plans being rejected, that's not going to last very long. Because God's about to make a promise to David that will literally change the course of human history. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. This is a reversal. The Lord's going to build the house. And so we come to the Lord's purpose. Remember what I said, 2 Samuel 7, all about the Lord's purpose. He's going to build a better house. What's that going to look like and what does it mean for us? I'm not sure of the demographic of everybody here, but some of you will have followed the celebrations for Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee. She's a terrific lady, the Queen. She's so classy. She could probably afford to lighten up a bit, but I got all the time in the world for her. I think she's brilliant. Now, for most of her life, Queen Elizabeth has lived where? Buckingham Palace, thank you. It's a, if you haven't seen it, it's a kind of modest house in central London. But a few years back, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, they downsized to their weekender at Windsor Castle. That's where they've lived, or at least that's where Queen Elizabeth still lives. Okay. When we speak about the British monarchy, the residence is important, right? Buckingham Palace is important. Do you know what's more important is the house? Not the physical house, but the house of Windsor, because it's the house of Windsor. That's the family through which the British Empire is ruled. Now, the thing with um, these dynasties that are hereditary, you know, passed on from family to family, we would pray, and rightly so, God save the Queen. It's a good prayer because Charles comes next. And then you got Will and his children. Then you got Harry in sixth and heaven forfend. We've got uh, Prince Andrew, I think, in ninth. Lord have mercy. But that's how hereditary kingdoms work, isn't it? You go on and on looking for an heir. Because if you run out of heirs, guess what? Another house takes over the throne. But not in 2 Samuel 7. Your house, that is the house of David, Allah, the house of Windsor, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Now, what does that mean? How is the Lord going to keep this promise? Think of it. He's either going to have to keep on producing heir after heir after heir because, well, if you run out, the house of David will stop. So he's either got to do that, keep on producing heirs, or we're going to be looking at a son of David who can live forever. There are options. And we know that this forever king, it can't be David, because if you glance at verse 12, at some point he's going to rest with his fathers, which is a polite way of saying he's going to kick the bucket. Solomon, David's successor, well, he's going to die too. Actually... When it talks about these kings being disciplined in just a few short generations, really, from here, and it's hard to imagine because this is the golden age for Israel. In just a few short generations, things are going to get so grim for the people of God. Israel, the nation, is going to be wiped off the map, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians, and that means there'll be no kingdom over which a son of David can rule. There'll be no temple, there'll be no palace, there'll be no promised land, it's all gone. And as God's people reflected on this catastrophe, and that's what it was, 
and I should say it was brought about by their own chronic rebellion, what word of promise sustained God's people while they were prisoners in foreign countries like Babylon? Because you'd have to say that with the kingdom destroyed, it looks very much like this promise to David has failed. It's not for the faint-hearted, but Psalm 88 and Psalm 89 are some of the darkest passages in the Old Testament. And they are reflecting on this very catastrophe. And they ask questions like this. How long, Lord? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? If I can say this reverently, this is how you argue with God on the basis of his promises. And so to what promise do you and I turn to when disaster strikes? And trust me, if you live long enough, it will. What truth do we turn to when it feels like God is distant and when it looks like he's left you to fend for yourself? Where do you go? You go to 2 Samuel 7, your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever. And that's why. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll find Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah promising the same thing. In the darkness of Israel's catastrophe of being wiped off the face of the earth, what did these prophets say to God people? What did they say to them? They said, well, things like this. You'll recognise this from every Christmas. This is Isaiah speaking. To those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Do you remember how Jesus describes himself in John's Gospel? I am the light of the world. But to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. What's he going to be like? Well, he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What's he going to do? He will reign on David's throne forever. Whoever this is, this is Messiah hope. This is what Israel is looking for, a king in the line of David who will reign forever. And then suddenly, a thousand years after the promise to David, which itself was a thousand years after the promise to Abraham, all of a sudden, from our perspective, we, might, we meet a guy called Joseph who would ordinarily be totally forgettable. And it just so happens that Joseph is, guess what, in the line of David. How about that? And he's pledged to a young girl, Mary. And probably a bit like Nathan, Mary gets this word from the Lord that she wasn't anticipating. You, Mary, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son. You're to call him Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called son of the Most High. What's he going to do? The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will rule forever. And I want to say to you tonight that our response to this announcement, familiar words though they are, our response ought to be something like David's response to the original promise. Who am I, Sovereign Lord? And what's my family that you've brought me this far? That your son would stoop to be my crucified king. And that for my sake, you'd reveal your son to be my risen Lord. Who am I? This passage begins with David's plan to build God a house. 
only to find that God has better plans for a better place, for a better rest, for a better king. But it struck me earlier this week, when God made this promise to David, and it's what we call an unconditional promise, God binds himself to the house of David forever. But when he made this promise to David, he knew exactly what David was like. He knew that David would be a good king, and he was. He was a great king. And you can't say that about many of the kings of Israel because most of them were dads. God knew he would be a terrific king. God also knew he'd be a rotten sinner as well. And yet, the Lord's promise to David, it was stronger than David's disobedience. The Lord's faithfulness was more powerful than Israel's rebellion and in the same way his love for you is deeper than any of your failures. And we know this how? How can we say that with such confidence? Well, because to us a son was given so that we through his death might be the forgiven children of God. And so in humility... As the beneficiaries of this promise to David, which comes at the cost of God's forever king, I think we do well to join with David as he prays, who am I, sovereign Lord? And what's my family that you've brought me this far?